The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So last week we started talking about chapter 16 in Jack Hornfield's book, which is about the Four Noble Truths. And I mentioned that the Four Noble Truths uh, was covered in the Buddha's first Dharma talk after his awakening. He hung out for a while under the Bodhi tree, just getting a sense of what had happened to him, what he had uh, awakened to, this sort of understanding deeply the nature of the mind. And at some point he realized that he would try to share it to see if it would be useful for other people. And he, he thought about it and he realized that he'll track down some friends of his that he had been practicing with, but they left him. And so I talked about that last week and about this talk he gave where he described the middle way between asceticism and indulging in sense experience and that if you spend your whole life seeking pleasant sense experiences, we're going to feel robbed because it's not going to lead to any lasting happiness. And on the other hand, if we spend our life rejecting life, rejecting sense experience, that's also going to be a dead end. And so the Buddha began his teaching saying both of those aren't an end in themselves. Rejecting life doesn't lead to happiness. Seeking happiness through sense experiences like really good house, really good food, even really good friendship, which, you know, we often think of as being wholesome, and certainly it is wholesome. But in the end, those things are all fragile. They come and go. So the Buddha said, there's a middle way, not that, not that. And the way he described the middle way was through the Four Noble Truths. And this isn't meant to be depressing, it's meant to be liberating. We can say that it's the not understanding stress in the mind, not understanding how the mind gets bound up that is the cause for suffering in life. Or another way, and we talked about this last week, there is inevitably pain in life. There's the pain of disappointment, the pain of loss, the pain of stubbing our toe, the pain of getting old, the pain of dying maybe. There's many, maybe an infinite number of ways to experience pain. And suffering is when the mind resists that pain. Like this is what Sylvia said. Suffering is what happens when we struggle with whatever our life experience is, rather than accepting an opening to our experience with wise, compassionate response. So the question is, shouldn't we be interested in how we're limiting ourselves? You know, if our reactivity to loss, to pain, our habit energy around loss, pain, disappointment, these inevitable insults in life, life comes with these the downs and life comes with ups. There are beautiful moments and there are difficult, challenging moments. And for both the beautiful and the challenging, we tend to take this personally. We tend to have a drama around the beautiful experiences in life and around the painful, difficult experiences in life. The drama involves a sense of self who has an agenda. And in this way, we layer, we project or layer suffering on top of an ordinary life of up and down. 
we just assume that because life can't be controlled, that there are ups and downs. It's good and then it's bad, and then it's good and it's bad, or something like that. Because there are, there is change, and it's uncertain. We just assume that that's a problem, and so we struggle against what is inevitable. I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? Just the just the most basic fact that we're born, we age, and we die. So given that basic trajectory of the body, at least, you know, just the aging and dying process is challenging. So to somehow pursue a path that wouldn't involve pain or loss seems like doesn't make sense, given you know, just the fabric of existence. How would anybody win if that's how we set up success? You know, success is not being uncertain, not having loss. But have we ever met anybody who's been able to avoid it? No. So the way the Buddha set up this path is instead of rejecting life, instead of a blind pursuit of sensual pleasures, pleasant experiences, the Buddha said, if you really want to be happy, devote yourself to becoming intimate with the experience of dukkha, suffering or stress. Because in understanding stress, we understand this basic flaw. The Buddha once described it as a thorn stuck deep in the heart. You know how you get little thorns and they, once they get under the surface of the skin, it's like your finger or your wherever it is, it can really hurt, but it's like it's hard to find where it is. Sometimes you know you have to remove several layers of skin just to expose where the thorn is before you can remove it. And it's like this, this uh, habit we have it's deeply embedded. It's a very subtle, pervasive habit in the mind. And the only thing that reveals the habit is something we really don't want to do, which is be intimate with suffering or stress. And it's the not being fully intimate, present with the experience of mental resistance, fear, loss, neediness, loneliness, despair, boredom, irritation, you know, all the different flavors of suffering. It's the not, uh, the not being willing to be radically present, undefended, means we're going to keep missing that thorn embedded deep in the heart. So last week I mentioned, you know, there are four truths. This is a a description of insight that a human being goes through by cultivating a life of mindfulness, of that simple, clear presence. So the first set of insights under the first noble truth, there is dukkha, there is stress in life. That's an insight because so much of the time we're in denial. So to just have that simple, clear recognition, oh, Life comes with suffering. 
it's not a mistake, it's not something that I did, it's not my fault. There just is stress in life. So that's an insight. And then the second insight in the personal truth is, this is relevant. It's not a mistake. This is something like a, it's a teacher for us. That's last, last week I mentioned to people, let's make moments of suffering teachers instead of a mistake, a betrayal, life is betraying me because I hurt and I don't want to. But oh, if there's suffering, there is something to understand. That's, that's the attitude the Buddha would recommend. When you feel bound up in some way, you know, weighed down in some way, uneasy in some way, then the first thing that should arise in the mind, oh, there is something here to understand. My teacher has showed up. I am so grateful, you know, and if we were maybe in the East, we'd get down on our knees and put our head to the ground and say, you know, welcome, venerable sir, venerable man. I'm so glad you showed up. Please teach me what you have to teach, you know, and then we'd, we'd be quiet and we'd feel what we feel, see what we see, know what's there in the body and mind. Oh, it's like this. And that's the third insight in the first noble truth. There is suffering or stress or dissatisfaction. It should be understood. It has been understood. The heart, mind is undefended. It's completely open, seeing this thorn embedded deep in the heart, seeing opening to this experience. And that reveals the cause, which I want to talk a little bit about tonight. So we're spending one week on each of the Four Noble Truths. The first one is there is suffering. The second, there's a cause. The third is this suffering ceases. And the fourth is there's a path to the cessation of stress. And so the first has three insights. The second is just a grouping of three insights. The third has three insights, the fourth. So there's 12 insights. That's it. We just need to have 12 insights. Cultivating 12 insights our whole life long. First one seems so obvious. All we have to do is begin to turn around our habit of running from suffering, running from pain. Understand it's here, it's relevant, and in the moment when we've opened to it, to understand we've opened to it completely, there's no more denial, no more reactivity, there's just a simple, honest interest. Oh, oh, it's like this. This is how it is now. Suffering is like this. Stress is like this. And then another insight emerges. Now we can sort of say, oh, second noble truth is arising, right? Because there's a new insight arises. Oh, dukkha has a cause. Lo and behold, it didn't just happen to me. It's a lawful, conditional thing that I feel weighed down. I feel confused by life. I feel burdened by life. It has a cause. And this cause, this awakening that there is a cause is recognizing it's right here. This is such a powerful insight because so much of the way we avoid insight is we project the cause of our suffering out there. 
blame it on the world, on another person, even blame it on ourselves. But we objectify ourselves as like being out there. You know, when I did this, I caused my suffering. But the way that it actually works when we're really honest and clear is if there is suffering, that means the cause is right here and now. And you can just, this is part of our homework for the next couple of weeks. Whenever you notice that you're suffering, you're dissatisfied, you feel burdened, feel the pain of disconnection, so subtle or obvious pain or suffering, then just see. See, is the cause here and now? Or am I, because if the cause isn't here now, then actually we're completely helpless, right? Does that make sense? So either there's something we can do about it, which means the cause is right here and now, or it's already been caused, this is just the inevitable fruit, there's nothing I can do about it. And so last week we made this point, uh, uh, the differentiating between pain and suffering. The ordinary experience of pain or unpleasantness, emotional, mental, physical, and the mental suffering, the mental dissatisfaction, the mental weight that is added to that. And that's what we can do something about. So there is a cause. The cause should be let go of. The cause has been let go of. These are the next three insights. There is a cause. And then the insight isn't, I'm going to let go of this. The insight is, we're seeing the cause, the mind is seeing the cause clearly and recognizing it's extra. It's not helpful. That's what it means it should be let go of. And then the third insight the Buddha mentions is it has been let go of. So that's an insight. When whatever that cause is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, there's a recognition it's been let go of. It's not so much that you or I have to let go of the cause of suffering. It's we see there is a cause, we see that it's extra, that it should be let go of, and it's that is the cause for the letting go. It's the seeing that the cause is extra. So what's the cause of suffering? I mean, intellectually, we probably all know it. We know what that thorn is embedded deep in the heart. You know, it's attachment, or what we call clinging, grasping, or <laughs> rope burn. Right? Life is moving. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. Our physical, mental reality is just tumbling forward conditionally, cause and effect, rolling along. Sometimes the mind-body experience is pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. And then as this natural, conditional process is rolling on, there's something else rolling on, which is our conditioned habits of relating to the rolling on of our life. And these two things are both aspects of nature, sort of life, the mind-body life, and the attitude about the mind-body life, which is just part of the mind, of course. And this part of our habit energy around life tumbling forward is we don't like it a lot of the times. Or when, it, when we do like it, we don't want it to change. And that's the rope burn. Life is tumbling along in this interdependent way. So many different causes and conditions at play. And on top of that, or right with that, 
is our liking it or not liking it depending on how it is in the moment and so that's the resistance that's the rope burn that the mind in a sense projects over imputes into the ordinary experience of life rolling on tumbling forward and this is what we awaken to for the, the second noble truth there's a cause that's that recognition of this extra overlay and then the next insight is should be abandoned meaning this is totally unnecessary it's totally extra we don't need to resist life you know if we if we made a pig out of ourselves at lunch or as I did this afternoon after a long meeting went home and someone had given us some chocolates you know and I had one too many <laughs> so I was feeling a little bit to the world until I had some green tea and uh, you know so we're if we do something then we're feeling the residual pain of doing that then that's already the way that it is so the overlay in that instance might be some judgment like I'm such an idiot but that overlay doesn't help doesn't like alleviate the natural appropriate consequences of having eaten too much sugar too much chocolate it's completely unnecessary and so that immediately can be released if it's seen the pain in the belly or the other consequences that will be what it is that's going to follow the natural causes and conditions you know so maybe by tomorrow or you know who knows depends how I behave <laughs> but but the added piece of hating myself or hating the person who gave the chocolates or just hating the world <laughs> for being set up in this way you know where we're enticed to do things that then hurt us you know we can we can get angry at everything or one of the things we find ourselves doing a lot when we're uncomfortable is we do more of the same it's like we're temporarily distracting ourselves from our discomfort by eating more chocolate have you noticed that habit or if we're really <coughs> bored by reading things on the internet or watching TV what do we do we watch more TV to avoid the feeling of being bored so we do all kinds of things when we're uh, sort of lost in the cycles of suffering reactivity but we can break it in any moment by going falling back to the first noble truth oh there's stress it should be understood it has been understood oh there's a cause this cause should be abandoned it has been abandoned oh there's cessation this is the third noble truth this is a moment of awakening this is a taste of nibbana or nirvana in sanskrit nibbana or nirvana means the cessation of suffering the cessation of self-centered drama in a moment is a taste of nibbana when it's steady then it's awakening you know this is this is what a saint is a saint is a person where the cessation of greed anger and delusion the self-centered drama is just not there anymore or not there very much and you're kind of a saint <laughs> you know and the rest of us are ordinary people and hopefully ordinary people that have a sense an intuitive sense of this 
development of practice enough so that we have some confidence that this is the approach, not denial, not rejection of life, not indulging in any little pleasures we can just to distract yourself, but that there is suffering, stress. It should be understood. It has been understood. There is a cause. This cause should be abandoned. Whoa, it has been abandoned. And this is the great mystery and, and delightful insight to see that I don't need to abandon attachment. I don't have to abandon craving and grasping and fearing and hating. All I have to do is see it for what it is, to see that it's extra, to see that it's not helping. So it's clear seeing that is the cause for the letting go. And it's the letting go which is the cause for a moment of freedom. And when we have a moment of freedom, then we understand the path. That's the fourth noble truth. Oh, there's a way of practicing. There's a way of living. This should be developed. This way of living, this way of being, has been developed. And that completes the four. And we'll talk about three and four in the next two weeks. But I want to say a little bit more about the second noble truth and then open it up for discussion. Last week I mentioned that it's just this reflection of a young person coming to us and asking, you know, I said, well, imagine like a really sincere, a really sharp 17-year-old, 18-year-old who's just beginning to get the lay of the land. And just how much struggling there is. People struggling to find a partner, struggling to get into college, struggling to get a job, struggling to be cool, you know, struggling not to, to struggling to have some meaning to understand life or how it is. And they ask us, you know, is there some way to not suffer in life? You know, what is that about? What is, what is that path of not suffering? Or is the best we can hope for just managing avoiding as much suffering as we can. Like if somebody asks us, is there real lasting happiness in life? A stable happiness that isn't dependent on having a job or not having a job, having a partner, not having a partner, being cool, not being cool. And I, I suggested, well, what would we say? Like just to reflect, what would you say to somebody like who asked you that question? Would we have anything to say to them? Do we really believe that suffering that's possible for human beings to have a normal life of gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain? Is it possible for somebody moving through those different goods, good times and bad times to be free from suffering. Because this, the answer to this question has a lot to do with whether we're going to undertake this path of practice. We need at least an open mind. Why else? If we don't have an open mind, we're either going to be practicing rejecting life altogether, which is some sort of I mean, in the best sense, it would mean that's an ascetic practice, even though that doesn't ultimately lead anywhere. In the worst sense, it's a kind of nihilism. You know, nothing matters. Or, you know, we're going to be one of those people, which we all are to some degree, 
that thinks the next electronic device is going to make us happy or the next relationship or the next vacation or the next, you know, whatever it is we imagine is going to sort of make things different than they've been for us. So if we have a sense that happiness really is available, you know, like being, that doesn't mean being an unusual human being, but being an ordinary human being, meaning ordinary, having a body, the natural trajectory of a body, having relationships, and the natural trajectory of relationships, sometimes they're great, sometimes they're challenging, sometimes people love us, sometimes they don't, but not suffering because any of that. And so this really brings us, you know, as we reflect deeply on our experience, opening to suffering, recognizing the cause, noticing in those moments, maybe they're rare, but in those moments where we really see the dropping away of attachment, the dropping away of any clinging or grasping in the mind. So that means a profound acceptance. And just a, a sense, some deepening intuitive sense of non-attachment. So let's say we have some of that experience, some of that confidence that comes from that experience. And we can begin to um, sort of see the lay of the land. Oh, like the, the beginnings of understanding the fourth noble truth, the path. Oh, so the the way, the path, is cultivating a life of non-attachment. See, then it starts getting interesting. Okay, how am I going to be a professional this or that, or a musician, or a teacher, or a mother, father, without attachment? Is it possible? What would that look like? How can I be a lover or a partner without attachment? What would that look like? How can I have a body vulnerable to disease and aging without attachment? How can I care about suffering in the world without attachment? What would that look like? It, it really starts opening up. You see, it's sort of like, isn't that, that's kind of, those are kind of interesting, provocative questions. And, we, and, and they really, those kind of questions, it's not about having an answer, but the question itself sort of uh, supports investigation like, I mean, wouldn't it be great for all of us to start experimenting with our most important relationship, whoever that might be, and just explore, like, what would this relationship be like without attachment, without expectation? How could the love and the, just the functional, the functionality of the relationship, how could it really be set free, become more wholesome without attachment? What would liberation look like in terms of being the mother of this child or the father of this child or the, the partner of this person or the employer of this person or the employee of this person? What would liberation look like? You know, what would the enlightened experience be like in this particular setting? Or like if you're old and dying, which, you know, is going to happen to all of us and maybe even some of us in this room right now are in that situation with some terminal or some probable disease that will lead to death relatively soon. 
as opposed to the rest of us, which could be at any time anyway. So what would that non-attachment, how would that be, being near death, being in the dying process? What would that look like? And you see, that really makes the practice alive. It makes it real. Because a lot of times when we take up meditation, it seems very theoretical. You know, like, well, I'm practicing to be free. But it's really nice to ground it in terms of non-attachment. This is the advantage we have as opposed to the Buddha. You know, in uh, this tradition of practice, what makes somebody a Buddha as opposed to uh, an awakened person is a Buddha did it without instructions. That's by definition. And then all of uh, the enlightened, awakened followers of the Buddha, they're called arhats or awakened beings because they had instructions. So they don't get the title of a Buddha because they had these teachings. We all get these teachings. So we, in this lifetime at least, can't be a Buddha because we've heard the teachings. So that's just the technical term. But we can have the same awakening, the same liberation as the Buddha. It's not, not that something happened to him that's distinct just to him. It's available and evidently has happened to countless people through the centuries. And it's just a matter of pursuing this path. And the turning point is when we stop running from our unpleasant experiences. Running meaning taking up denial or distraction, resistance, blaming, and get interested until we see that the mind is relating to difficulty, the ordinary difficulty in, way, in life, in ways that are counterproductive, that actually support the experience of suffering. So maybe I'll just end by mentioning that You know, one of the advantages, like I mentioned, is that we have these teachings. And so the Buddha broke down this cause of suffering into three ways that we get attached, three ways that we cling. Right? We crave or cling to sensual pleasures, pleasant experiences, right? We hold on tight. We desire them with attachment. It's not the desire itself. Someone asked this morning, well, what happens when you're hungry? Well, hunger is one thing, and the story we build around the hunger, that's really the clinging, the grasping. Like, I need to have food now, or it's not fair that I don't have food, or that's unnecessary suffering. We can just have the ordinary pain of being hungry without that overlay. So there's grasping, clinging to central experiences. There's grasping and clinging to becoming somebody. So I can have an idea of being an awakened being, and I can cling to that. I mean, that's maybe one of the most ironic things, <laughs> you know, that we can use awakening as a cause for suffering, because we can grasp it, the idea. And then, then that sets up all kinds of comparisons. Um, is she closer than me? Am I already awakened? You know, do, does everybody know that? 
It's just like endless suffering when we get attached to anything. Doesn't matter what we're attached to. Being attached to being a generous, kind person, being attached to being the most powerful person in the world, any attachment can be the cause of suffering. So we can have attachment to sense experiences, we can have attachment to becoming, like what we, who we want to be, and we can have attachment to getting out of, ending, being done with, extermination, annihilation, like enough already, I'm tired of this. And we can get attached to this, wanting this to be over with. Whatever this is, our life over with, this class over with, you know, it doesn't even matter what it is. It's the clinging that is the cause for suffering. So when you start looking for this seed, you know, there is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood, oh, there's a cause. And that recognition, it can look like grasping the mind, grasping, leaning toward sense experience, leaning toward wanting to become somebody, leaning toward wanting something to end. So you can be on the lookout for those three expressions of grasping, clinging, craving. So I'll leave it here. Next week we'll talk about cessation, the third noble truth, or the positive way to talk about cessation is a moment of freedom, the actual experience of liberation, a taste of awakening. But for now, let's just hear from each other. Maybe you have some questions or maybe you have some experiences you'd like to share with the group, your own process of recognizing dukkha, stress in your life, respecting it enough to open to it, maybe having some sense of the cause, maybe seeing that cause being released. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Eric. Yeah. Well, this makes sense if I suffer the consequences of my own follies. But if I do or say, some, say something and hurt somebody else, all of a sudden suffering is out there. And I can think about trying to let go of it, but it's out there because another person has it. And, uh, and it's very easy to get really bound up. Well, let's say we do something stupid and it set in motion suffering. Someone's, you know, reacted to our unskillful behavior and they're suffering and maybe acting in ways that are through ripple effects causing other people to suffer. But now the question is, how, uh, how is the mind relating to that memory? So the memory comes up and we feel tight. You know, we feel burdened by the memory, right? And we recognize that, oh, the heart hurts. It's relevant. I've understood, I'm really opening to it. I'm really accepting it. I'm feeling it. And we see the cause. There is a cause. Well, what's the cause of your suffering in this moment? The cause of your suffering in this moment is that memory, that image of that thing you set in motion, right, is unacceptable to me, to you, right? So there's that identification. It's like, I don't want to be associated with what I imagine I've set in motion. That connection, that identification, that attachment is intolerable. And we see that, oh, that's the grasping. I'm grasping, it's like, 
you want to become the person who didn't set that emotion or you want that not to cease you know whatever that pattern is but mostly it's like you want to be the person that didn't do that and that's grasping that's what you have to let go of that letting go not you but that letting go has to happen and that letting go will happen if you see that that grasping is completely unproductive it's not helping you it's not helping anybody not wanting that to be that way not wanting that person to suffer finding that intolerable that this was that this happened in this way that if that sort of rejection of that reality that can be let go of when we see that it's not helping anybody what would help definitely would help somebody immediately is forgiveness you know like it's easy to make mistakes it's easy to do something out of ignorance or out of being just the mind distorted by fear or whatever was going on that caused you to be unskillful you know just to appreciate how easy it is to make mistakes in life but it's all it's all ego it's all this self-centered drama that somehow mistakes shouldn't happen where is that written down you know it's easy to make mistakes it's so easy to be deluded and disconnected and uh, rushed and you know all the supporting causes for making mistakes basically yeah thanks Eric for sharing that example other thoughts Bruce yeah what's going around in my head if I was living in a, a life or living a world where there was no nationalism, racism, sexism, there would still be suffering. You're nodding your head. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it feels like that sort of brings me to the edge of something that I just can't quite grasp yet. I don't mean in a clinging sense, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, understand. <laughs> um, I I don't know. It's just it's going around in my head. Yeah, and and it's really um, I th- maybe if I understand where you're at, because normally when we're thinking about freedom from suffering, we generally conceive of some sort of utopian idea where people are nice to each other and take care of each other. And I think it's appropriate to see that vision as uh, sort of a nicer world than the world we're living in. It would be a nicer world if everybody behaved themselves and treated each other fairly with kindness. It would be a better world in a relative sense, but there would still be suffering in that world. Well, I think what it's bringing me to is like looking at all of that differently having some different relationship with it, but I can't quite imagine it. Yeah, and I think it may go down back to this thing about non-attachment. Like, how can we see both that a world where people are kind is better, a world where people are really greedy or power-hungry is worse, but uh, not being attached to how things change, how the world unfolds? That's very provocative, that idea. Like how to participate fully in our lives on all levels. You know, really showing up in our intimate relationships, 
really showing up as citizens and getting involved and being a cause for peace and positive change and not be attached. And so we need to practice in little ways until we gain confidence that non-attachment is not the same as disengagement. Actually, we need to realize that non-attachment is the only way to fully engage the moment. Because it's the attachment that separates us. All of the experience of separation, separation from our partners, our families, the world at large, all that separation comes because we're attached. We have agendas and expectations. It's the attachment that separates things into this and that, me and you, good and bad. So does dropping, going beyond the world of good and bad, the evaluation of good and bad, does that in any way limit us as being really wise, loving, compassionate people? And it's an experiment. I don't, don't look for an answer, but like we explore that like in the little corners of our life where that feels safe to do that exploration, including our sitting practice. You know, when we're sitting for our 40 minutes a day or hour a day or half an hour a day, whatever it is for you, when you're doing your sitting practice, you're still having very much a relationship. You're, re you're having a relationship with your own life in that moment as opposed to your partner or your people at work. And so it's a little microcosm of our whole life. So can we relate to that experience without attachment? Is it unskillful? Does it create problems? Do we get somehow disconnected if we're not attached to the body, not attached to the activity of the mind? And the, what we find is that through this process of being mindful, which we could say is the same as being intimate, intimate, we can't be intimate and attached. So it's like one or the other. We think, superficially, we think attachment is the same as being intimate. If I'm really attached to something, we feel like I'm really engaged. But it's not true. It's just we're not paying attention enough to notice that the attachment separates us. When we're attached, we're intimate with an idea about things, but we're not actually intimate with things in and of themselves. We're not, we're not intimate with the person. Because life, a person, the community, it's all, you know, it's a very alive dynamic. And the only, when we're attached, it always involves an idea. And that idea is just in our own mind. It's not really reality, like we imagine. You know, I'm attached to this being right, but that's just an idea in my mind. To really be intimate with life, we have to drop those, you know, those concepts. Yeah, John. So this is maybe an encapsulation of everything you've been talking about. Uh, a few years ago, um, I had a family member that had, a couple family members that had sort of not great family situations. And so um, I got very attached to the idea that I was going to come in and rectify the situation, which is always a recipe for disaster, of course. Um, and, through a process of realizing that that was creating more suffering for myself and others, um, I had to uh, go about disengaging and letting go. Um, so, but then it's sort of the, the 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 masquerade that comes in with that is then finding myself being apathetic because the situation was difficult and it was messy and under the guise of I'm letting go, I'm not being attached. I found myself just shutting the door. 
And so, um, you know, what I find is it's, it's oftentimes very messy and very confusing, confusing for me with this sort of back and forth. Um, obviously, it, it feels like this is the right direction because I keep going that way, but there is a there is sort of a yeah. tediousness or a wearing that can happen upon that happens to me after a while of trying to just stay on that sort of razor edge point of nothing solid here, but I you know it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, no, that's a great great place to end because I think you're right. It does summarize everything we've been talking about. Because I think that what you describe is that movement between um, attachment to sense experience. In this case, your sense experience that you're attached to is the, these family dynamics turning out well, right? And then the nihilistic view is, it's not my problem. It's not my responsibility. They're living their own life. That's the nihilistic view. That's falling into asceticism or nihilism, like, I'm out of here. This is too much, or this isn't about me. It's not my fault. They'll figure it out or not. And, and intuiting that both aren't working. And the problem is we always, the tendency, because our minds are relatively superficial, our tendency is to want to solve the problem on the surface. Like, what's the right thing for me to do in this situation? But actually the resolution is first, what's the right attitude to have about what I'm experiencing? What's the right view or attitude to hold the experiencing that's happening. So that's what I would do is I would, like let's say that's still happening, that your family members are still struggling and you're still feeling pulled to help and then disappointed or whatever and sort of just wanting to, to, to withdraw in some way. Then I would just notice that, oh, there is suffering. Like you feel your heart the exposure you have because you're aware of their pain and that's having an effect on your heart. It's, you feel it. You know, I care and it hurts. It hurts me to know that they're suffering. This is relevant. It should be understood. It has been understood. Oh, there's a cause. And this is, this is so uh, obvious with loved ones, which is we don't want them to suffer. But Sometimes loved ones suffer. So if we have this set idea in the mind, this attachment, that my loved ones shouldn't suffer, well, not only are our loved ones going to suffer, because it's inevitable at times that our loved ones are going to suffer, but then we're creating unnecessary suffering on top of that. So we have to, that's the part you can do. You can see that there's this self-centered drama, basically, I don't want my loved ones to suffer, that attachment. It's a clinging, a grasping. That, if you see it clearly, John, it will fall away. And then, you still won't know what to do, but whatever you do do, whether you engage them and try to help, or whether you stand back and sort of let things take their natural course, it won't be driven by your neurotic fear or attachment. So you'll really be freed up to respond with compassion. Like you won't have any particular need in the process. So you're just there. And because you don't have any particular need, you're going to be there, you're going to be sensitive, and if it's not helping, you'll try something else. I'll stand back for a while, I'll get engaged, you know, I'll try this, I'll try that. 
because you're not trying to make you already have made peace with them suffering so your engagement doesn't depend on it getting better but you do want it to get better it's the same thing with social activism of course we want things to get better but we don't need to be attached to things getting better just because we want them to get better trust the earth to get into global warming where you know there are droughts and you know serious damage and intense suffering nobody wants that but to get frightened and attached like it can't happen that doesn't help us be more skillful in addressing global warming we just think that it it's the only way to motivate us is to get really frightened really attached but we can get motivated by love and compassion we don't need fear and anger blaming to be motivated but because we're not aware of that other motivating force we tend to fall back on fear you know like not wanting our loved ones to suffer and just the fear of being impotent like i can't help them but we need to leave it here let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words appreciating people's comments appreciating these ancient practical teachings and just as we're the beneficiaries of the men and women who have done the practice before us passed it along we can be inspired to cultivate a simple clear presence in life to allow wisdom and compassion to grow and each of us in our own way to be part of this tradition of wisdom compassion continuing in the world to be part of the causes for peace and freedom from suffering in the world in our hearts so may this be so and thanks again everyone for coming tonight thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org/donate